So welcome to another episode of Can Marketing Save the Planet? Michelle and I are delighted today to be joined by Sam Taylor, founder of The Good Factory. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I guess let's start with a bit of introduction to yourself, uh, The Good Factory and the work you do. Right. Uh, yeah, so I'm a third generation garment producer. Um, my entire family is in clothing in some capacity going back a very long time, uh, be it manufacturing, fabric production, or through brands. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I grew up on, on the factory floor, effectively. In fact, I used to try and Skype school, knowing <laughs> that I could um, hang out in the sampling room instead of actually having to, to go to school. So it's something that I've always loved. Apparel is something that I love. Um, and I started The Good Factory after I had my son. Um, and it was it's effectively what it is. It covers consulting, sourcing, development, and the production management of entire life cycles of performance-based sportswear. And so, yeah, that's what we cover. Fantastic. And so the sustained, it's interesting you say the good factory came around um, after you had your son. So I'm, I'm sensing there's a kind of consciousness that came in there around what is going on with regards to apparel and and the world that we live in. You know, we, we've we seen the, the the levels of waste that happen in in the clothing industry, you know, there's no escaping it. And of course, from a marketing perspective, we've got some of the best brands on the planet, you know, marketing beautifully, the the idea of have more, get more, you know, two for one, whatever that looks like. And of course, that narrative is starting to change. It's starting to change around, uh, be more considered. Pre-loved is, is really, you know, coming into its own. I know I've got two teens, well, I say teens, but 20 and 17. And for them, the idea of going and buying new clothes is just so alien. Um, and so I'm guessing that the good factory and this idea of sustainability coming into how you can be supporting brands and organizations with their life cycle assessments, with understanding the sourcing and responsible sourcing, is, is that where you've got to? Is that the kind of work that you're now focused on? Yes, a hundred percent, and it's and it's interesting. So although it came about after I had my son, and and yes, that definitely played a part into it. Previously, I'd worked for a, for a major sports company, and I remember trying to push, trying to get them to move um, from virgin synthetics to recycled for one of the one of the ranges, and it was costing us less than one percent in margin. Wow! And they refused. They were not interested, but it's something I've always been interested in. Um, I remember when I, I, I went and did a degree in fashion design and I, I didn't do very well, like hands up to that. I did not smash that, but it's um, interesting because my, my final show was around sustainability and sportswear. Right. And it was the year that it all came to light that DuPont had effectively knowingly been poisoning people with um, the C8 carbon chains. And so I did a big project around, you know, natural ways to deal with waterproofing and also how 
what consumerism looked like in the future. So we were moving away from this idea of buying new outfits and, and how did people bring in their individuality? And I remember being told uh, when I got my results that I did not understand the clothing industry. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're going back, you know, 16 years. So it's quite, mm. quite a long time. Mm. Um, and it, that really knocked me, like really knocked me. Um, so it's something that I moved away from. And it's, it's only now, I think, being older and the fact that, you know, the industry's moved on the way it has, that actually we can say, no, no, it wasn't me that didn't understand the yeah. industry. People just hadn't caught up. Yeah. 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 And actually what what's happening now is is bigger than just the fashion industry, isn't it? It's it's lifestyle, it's how we're all been living. We've all been over consuming. We've we've all been not considering where our products go when when we finish with them at all and and organizations haven't really cared what happens to them once they've made the money off them so i think today i think we're going to really dig into two really important areas which is around kind of measurements and metrics on on the impacts of products and 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 look into that but also the life cycle assessments of products so i guess do you want to start unpacking in terms of if you delve into the fashion industry you know, one of the issues is it's such it's such a complex uh, it, it's such a complex structure that sits behind it because there's so many moving parts. But how how do you even begin to uh, unpick what what is good and, and what is bad and, and trust it? Yeah, I think it's it's you're right. It's so hard um, because. We don't, we, we don't have good data. We have no good data and we have no way of training or certainly people don't have the incentive to train individual team members in looking at their own categories in order to collect the data and make sense of that data. Um, so like a prime example of this, um, a couple of weeks ago, a luxury conglomerate released their sustainability report. And in it, they talked about that they'd saved X amount of water through their cotton production. And some very, very clever cotton experts sort of sat there and was like, that doesn't seem very accurate because, you know, you've used uh, globalized um, averages based on, you know, various number of scientific data reports, but you've not applied it to your local context of where you're sourcing or where you say you're sourcing your cotton from. Which we know in a localized um, data com um, complex uses less water than anywhere else. So if you apply that, you've actually increased your water consumption year on year, not decreased it. And then, then the question becomes: but but why? You know, is that in the production process, or are you are you making more using that cotton? And so, you know. All of a sudden, it's it, it doesn't it doesn't read as well. Mm. And how seriously would you say? I mean, because from a consumer perspective, I mean, we're not going to be privy to that. I mean, I know there are lots of brands that have the labels. Some of them have been extracted. I know we've just been, you know, talking about writing our next book and we've been doing lots of research and lots of writing. And, and uh, you know, we did look at labels and there were some clothing brands that then removed their sustainable labels because 
but yeah, quite a few, just because it's too difficult and they don't want to be called out for greenwashing. They are trying to do, you know, often the right thing. But like you say, there are these complexities, especially if they're global organizations around how can we do this locally? How does that impact us globally? Where does the brand sit? You know, you could be doing something really well on a local perspective, but you are a global brand, you know, so how does that all ladder in? And I suppose what, how, how is this positioned back to the brand and the organization? I'm assuming in some scenarios, there are some legislations that they need to be aligned with. Um, but generally, I mean, what we found around many of these metrics and many of these frameworks and many of these, you know, outputs is that they're quite arbitrary and people can kind of decide what's going to come out of the report. You know, it's kind of like, what are we going to talk about? What are we doing? And, and you know, people are going to be, you know, focused on what are we doing well that we can talk about and and not necessarily exposing and being transparent. I mean, some are, but, you know, most people probably aren't talking about the challenges that they've got internally and how they're trying to overcome them. So from a consumer perspective, then, when we see something saying this is, you know, uh, ethically sourced or this is, uh, you know, a green product, how can we, gen? I mean, realistically, we can't trust that. Yeah, a hundred percent. You can't, um, which is is an awful thing to say because there's so many good small brands doing so well, and actually the bigger ones ruining for the rest of us. Right. Um, so that you know that labelling that you said, or oh, we saw and disappeared, that will be the Hig Index who had to remove their consumer facing um, tool from the marketplace. So just tell us about the Hig Index there, if, I, if you don't mind me just interrupting on that point, because, you know, just to keep us all in context. So the Hig Index is, um, was created by the Sustainable Power Coalition. Um, and it's just the, con- the one that's been banned is just the consumer facing one. So there is an industry body behind it um, that, that brands can tap into. But effectively what it does is it provides information on different types of fiber types um, and it tracks, again, this comes back to the global averages that were kind of used and not very good data, but it tracks, you know, the carbon footprint, the water reduction um, and, and those, those sorts of environmental factors um, around all sorts of different fiber types. So virgin polyesters, recycled, cottons, wools, um, and the various different types that you get. Um, so that, that is what they, they do. And the reason they had to remove it or remove the consumer-facing aspect, which a lot of brands had bought into, including H&M, is that um, they, they found that they were misleading. They right. were misleading claims because they couldn't back it up with enough data. Right. Um, and to be fair to the Hig Index or, or the Sustainable Power Coalition, they have gone back to the drawing board and have brought in many more experts, including the Textile Exchange. They've got some denim experts coming in. Um, so they did listen um, to the feedback and the legal um the legal problems that a number of brands had because they didn't adhere um, to various greens claims codes. Okay. Do you think that? Do you think it's possible to get to a place where we can 
make fair and reasonable comparisons where the data will be good enough and then marketers will be able to communicate that or organizations will be able to communicate that because we've got the same you know fashion's not on its own here we've got the same issues with carbon labeling you know on food and stuff like that so you know it's just so complex do you think do you think we'll get there in 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 your expert opinion around you know what you know from the fashion industry is it possible i yes but i think we have to everybody has to be on board and when i say everybody it's everybody within the supply chain um and this is where it gets easier is you know everybody has their set of data that they need to provide and it's not like we don't already do that because when you look at costings we can really deep dive into costings and everybody knows how much water you're using because you pay for it Mm -hmm. Um, obviously if it's rainfall and irrigation there should be some way that we can mitigate that through Um, but yes like there is no reason that we not use this data. Um, a large problem we have is is that there isn't enough money being sent through the supply chains. Um, there isn't a fair price, and, and data costs money. Right. So, what what role do you think, if any, that regulation needs to play in this? Do we need more regulation? Do we need different regulation? Because you know, it, it seems that. It just seems that people hide behind the fact that it's too complicated, don't they? Whenever it comes to, I mean, it's fine. When it comes to money, suddenly it's not complicated at all. We can <laughs> get to that number, can't we, quite easily. But it would seem that money is also blocking opening up that that transparency around what sits behind this. And until us as people can really make those decisions and, and see, you know, whether one brand's products are better than another brand's products we're all always going to be I guess relying on the fact that that brand is being truthful isn't it and as marketers how can we ever talk about our truth you know in an open transparent way when we're you know when as you say it's there's no good data at the moment yes uh, I think unfortunately I think government plays a lot bigger part um than the entire industry would like. I mean, we're seeing it with you know the e, the new EU deals um, and the new EU legislation that are coming through in the US. Like the Federal Trade Commission are updating their sort of greens claims codes. Yeah. Um, so I think yes, it will. It, it's going to be a lot bigger, I think. And then this, I think, where we'll see it become. Um, sort of become more enforced will be through import laws, right? Um, and I, I think that's where we where we'll start seeing it, instead of it being um, sort of marketing based, because it's much more enforceable um, from an import perspective. Yeah, because the FTC hasn't they? They've just updated their green guides in America for the first time in like over a decade. And they're getting quite prescriptive on what you can and can't say. And I guess unless unless the ways you measure the things that sit all behind that, how can you even say you can't talk about one thing over another? The argument back could easily be, well, you know, you can't prove that I'm I'm you know what I'm saying is is true and fair, or if I'm lying, really, because there's no data that sits behind it, can you? Yeah. So it's going to be fines. Um, 
they, I mean, the, the fines, I mean, everything with America though is, is much more extreme than, than we yeah. get here in the UK. But I mean, yeah, the potential fines, I mean, they, they're, they're eye-watering numbers. Yeah. Yeah, they are. They just take a very long time to get to that point though, unfortunately, mm. don't they? So yeah. and there's only a small group looking after, looking after that and doing the investigating. Yeah. And it's a shame it has to kind of, we have to wait until it's kind of like, it's, it's almost, come on brands. I mean, you, you know, they've, like you say, if the, that, that's kind of a bit heartbreaking, isn't it? The 1% of the margin, it, it, because I think that's the narrative that, oh, it's too expensive to change everything. And, and of course, from our experience, and, and it isn't loads of experience, but from our experience and from what we've learned and researched and every time we kind of dig d- deeper into some of these things, yes, of course, change may have some cost implications, but it often has a lot of saving implications as well. And and I suppose, you know, one of the things we talk about is these unusual partnerships where larger organisations are now working with some of these smaller, innovative brands and giving them the opportunity to scale their innovation in a way that is both cost effective, truly sustainable and quite innovative and can actually drive a a sense of uh, unique proposition for that brand and that organization. So I think I think there's also got to be that appetite that, yes, there's regulation and yes, there is consumer demand. And yes, you know, stakeholders are hopefully, you know, all, all part of that. But there's also got to be that sense of What's the business doing? How is this business evolving and taking this seriously? And what are they looking at? And how 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 kind of courageous will they be to make some changes to say, actually, we really need to be innovating here, not just innovating about, you know, a better, faster, quicker product, uh, you know, but actually a truly more sustainable, more fair more you know ethical way of of doing business i mean they can't be hiding away from the facts of the waste that is and the impact of of what is going on within the clothing industry so so what does that mean i mean we talk about degrowth and well we don't talk about it but you know when we interviewed when we've interviewed Philip Kotler, you know, he talked about demarketing and that's going to be a real tension for brands and organizations because what we're saying is don't make as much stuff, you know, don't, don't sell as much or you, you know, create something that's got much more durability so people don't need as much. So when we, we're away from this kind of throwaway convenience and how can we wrap services around this? How can we drive brand loyalty around that so that, you know, I love the story of of Mars. I think that it was that, you know, yes, they had their pet food company, but then they turned into a pet insurance organization. You know, how can we also be looking after the pets, not just feeding them, but how can we extend that so it isn't just about one thing and we've got that loyalty and that that kind of service uh, with our customers so that we're bringing them along with us. And And are you seeing any brands in the market thinking like that, turning their products into more sustainable services? Because it's it's not something I can bring to mind. I mean, yes, I've seen rental and, and various things, but ongoing. I mean, we have, we're very fortunate, I think, in the UK, that's actually something that we have quite um, a, a few of. Um, Hyatt Denim are a prime example. Um, painter jackets are another. Um, small brands, they are phenomenal um, at 
creating and they're really cult-like statuses yeah um because yeah they are their product designed for life in in some way and that's definitely where fast fashion um and sportswear have have very much moved away from um sportswear has its own throwaway culture that i think often comes from the football industry you know that turnover of that kit which is not which is very cheaply made but not cheap to buy yeah um that they they sort of really play on that and so sportswear has its has its similar issues um with fast fashion and and it's it's funny you should say that because obviously zara launched their repair services mm. um the other week as a trial within London and, and I, I mean again I'm permanently cynical about these things yeah but the fact that you don't see a strategy with it you, you know I want to know where does it fit in their strategy mm. because while the prices are, are they're good prices um for repair services you know 10 pounds to take up a hem or 15 pounds that's a good price it's not if your garment only costs £10 in the first place, you know, yeah. who's paying more than the garment they initially bought at? Mm. And then if it's not lasting very long, you know, this is where I would love to see regulation around repair services. Yeah. And that's yeah. not a new service, actually, because I remember my uh, my niece worked at Topshop, I think, and then, you know, when she was a student, and she was at doing a fashion degree and so very handy with the with the doing a couture class and very handy with the needle and 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 so they they did have those services years ago <laughs> it's just that they weren't talking about them as services uh and but now of course that's something that people tend to be bringing to the fore is oh this is a sustainable endeavor but i don't think they're actually new well, they're not, but a lot of those at that time were actually down to the regulation around the life cycle of your product. Right. So there's a lot of regulation around how long a product needs to last. Uh-huh. So we talk about a lifespan of a product. But what happened sort of in the last 10, 10 years is the fact that brands started determining what the lifespan of a product was. And so, you know, because you know, I'm, sure, I'm sure you've noticed in, in many of your clothes, that that you buy the quality that we have now Terrible. is not what it yeah. was yeah, yeah it's not what it was 10 years yeah. ago and the reason that is is there's been the legislation now in regulation is so lax on product life cycle um and so that was that was a warranty thing you know it was cheaper to repair it through those routes as a warranty issue um which we had insurance for at the time i don't think insurance covers it um quite what it what it used to be um and and yeah that that's why those services at that time existed um and they just just don't anymore um in a large part down to the fact that we've lost a massive amount of skills in the uk um in manufacturing um that it that's quite scary and i'm I'm not sure we'll ever get that back but i also Um, think um our behaviorally and marketing has driven a lot of this when the price is so low and you buy stuff and it doesn't last we've just hit this instant gratification culture haven't we where we just buy another one and we just buy another one and the value isn't in the 
the product that we're buying anymore is the fact that the value is we can get another one really quickly straight afterwards and we can just bin that one and we don't think about that do we at all so we've driven that price down to the lowest level we've added we've chucked free shipping on it we've chucked free returns on it you know all of the marketers tools and trades that we've thrown out there to to justify the fact that doesn't matter if this product's poor quality look how much you're paying for it and I think that's that's a really big problem isn't it because communication is a really critical element in bringing all this to life but just before we go into that if we jump back into you know the life cycle assessments in your view how how many organizations are are really responsible when they look at the life cycle assessments of their the true life cycle of their products because it would seem that it's not well for uh, for some it's not it stops at the point where they sell it, doesn't it? Yes. And and I think that's the problem about life cycle assessments. Again, it's we're determining the life cycle. Mm. Um, you know, a big one, again, comes down to, you know, not even just um, the end of life or how, how many product iterations we can get through it. But it's even in the very initial stages. Um, so a really great example is, um, polyester and polyamides, virgin ones, because the data has shown that actually the newer facilities are re- releasing a lot more methane, up to 10 times the amount of methane into the atmosphere as the older facilities. And that's a huge problem within the Mexican basin. And so if, if you're taking the raw material from that facility, then that carbon footprint of that very specific item yeah. Yeah. It's higher. Yeah. And so, yeah, we, we don't, we don't look at it and, and, or we don't, we definitely don't get access to it because everyone talks about this being sort of, you know, being business critical data that, that we don't, we don't get to see. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, that, and I suppose where, I mean, we talk, you know, we've, we've been doing some work on marketers thinking about carbon budgets, you know, and I suppose, wouldn't it, is there not a carbon budget on an LCA? Well, carbon accounting is in itself, um, I think it was at Greta Thunberg who said, you know, carbon accounting was created by the British because they they know how to how to manipulate the numbers. Um, Fair enough. I know. Fair enough. Um, and there should be, but there isn't. But again, then it comes down to: Are we actively tracking that data? Mm. You know, biomass yeah. is is not incorporated into our carbon budget despite the fact in the UK it makes up more than 50% of our renewables. Um, we have a lot, I think, yeah, uh, there's a lot of problems we have with that and the, the, the creativeness that we are able to be within carbon budgets is probably the same as the financial reports. Mm. I mean, the, for, the very fact that, you know, if you're going to rate a product, say, A to F, F being the worst, and you still allow F to be manufactured and produced and sold and on the shelf, there's a problem there, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, they wouldn't allow that in health and safety. If the brakes were rated A to F, you wouldn't have many F-rated brakes on the cars would you so what this is where we're kind of heading to isn't it we've got to get to that point we're doing so much damage you know to the environment in terms of carbon and we know we've got to reduce those emissions at what point are we going to say look 
can't service the good and the bad. Going back to your point around repair services, all well and good having repair services, but if you're not going to slow your production down and you know make better quality and less of them, what 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 you know what's the difference? Because people aren't going to take up those repair services, are they? At the end of the day, if they if it's so much easier just to yeah. buy another one. Yeah. Or, if- yeah, if that pricing issue is, you know, it, it costs you the same to get the hem tape or repaired than it does to buy the product, you're just going to get a product that fits, you know, and 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 send it back and, and all the returns impact and all of the rest of it. So, I mean, there's a real, it's really toxic, isn't it? I mean, I don't quite know how, I mean, we're not going to fathom it out on this podcast, but but it, it's it's interesting to learn about the data, what isn't available, what is available. And I suppose, you know, one of the things we try to do with our podcast is educate marketers to open their eyes to some of the realities of what's going on. And like you say, if the data's not there and, you know, or, or often we're just told this is the message, do that, do this. I suppose it's about, you know, one of the things we're focused on is how do we champion those marketers to ask questions? to be a little bit inconvenient, to say, where does this sit? You know, many marketers, you know, life cycle assessments are not something that is part of the marketing education curriculum. You know, mm. well, it, it's, it's kind of becoming part of it, but in the leadership space, but but it's not necessarily something that, you know, marketers before have had to really think about. You know, they're kind of like, you get the product, sell it, not look at, oh, hang on a minute, can we now really understand the extraction and what's gone into this process and 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 how that works? Uh, and, and of course, what's going to happen to this product or, you know, when it's, when it's at its end of life and how can we give the customers a role and get them to bring it back or do something different with it or break it down in a way that is more sustainable and efficient that serves both our business and indeed the planetary boundaries that we need to live within. And so, so you know, this is all new territory um, and it's very, very complex, clearly. Uh, and, and, you know, we spoke to Oliver Wheelby um, right on the podcast and he said, Marketers now need to kind of understand life cycle assessments. It may be boring. It may seem tedious, but you've got to know about this stuff because this is where some of the questions are. So what would your advice be to marketers kind of particularly maybe working in the apparel industry, whether sportswear, anything else, uh, thinking about some of these challenges? Maybe they start, they've, they've been feeling uncomfortable about this. What do they, what can they do? How can they show some leadership in this very complex area? I think the very first question I ask, um, and, it, and it will determine whether they're asking you to greenwash or not, yeah. where does this fit into our sustainability strategy? Okay. Where in the message is that sitting? You know, if they're turning around and saying, oh, we've, we've changed everything to recycle polyester. You're like, great. Where does that fit in? into our strategy is that around reduction of carbon, water, reduced plastic waste, you know, what is it? I'd keep asking those. That's probably the most important question is, yeah, how does that fit into the overall strategy? And if there isn't a strategy, then it's 100% greenwashing. Yeah. But also, I know, you know, we said it, it possibly tedious to start, you know, asking these questions and digging back. But Moving forward, if you look forward and put a sustainable lens over it, that's where your story is, isn't it? All of that behind you Mm -hmm. is where your story is moving forward. 
it's where your competitive advantage, if you know, because we still need to, if competing is I'm more sustainable you, then bring it on. But that's where it is, isn't it? That's where you become more interesting. That's where you're not deferring to price. That's where you're not having the same, you know, the same conversations as, as those that, you know, are in the same industries that you that, that are playing in the same space. So I guess it's, you know, it's incumbent on marketers to get curious, to ask those questions alongside where does this fit into our sustainability strategy? But, you know, can we talk about this and how can we talk about this? Because this is really important and this is a huge point of difference, isn't it, moving forward? Well, and it, and it also, it builds on everything because, you know, if you've got a really strong strategy, so for example, we've got a 10-year fabric strategy um, based on around what, what we know is happening now and what we know is coming through. And, and we, we keep going back and sense checking that, but we have a strategy around how we're going to phase out various materials over the next 10 years and where we're putting that instead. Right. Because that only helps know, okay, well, where is your money going? You know, where is the innovation going to be put? Because there's so much out there at the moment, particularly when you look at next gen materials and, you know, 10, 15 years time, you've got to know where you want, where you want your money to be focusing on. But it also helps, it helps that messaging because, you know, then that becomes a consistency. Mm. And, and we know consistency helps with creating brand trust yes um so you know if you've got that consistency of message going through you know just for example looking at synthetics you know first thing moving to recycled then perhaps if you've got to nylon um elastane or you know maybe using an elastomer depending on you know so then it can be recycled out moving into bio-based um you know, bacterial next gen, if you've got that messaging going through, you're creating trust as you go through the next 10 years. And, you know, come come 2028, we're going to know how badly we failed. And, you know, there's, there's still, you know, the world isn't going to end in 2030. Brands are still going to need to be existing after that point, after we have realized how badly we failed. And, and, it's going to be that trust yeah. that we have built along after that um, because we're not that long away. So no. we are still those brand customers. Yeah. I mean, we're talking five years, you know, and we're halfway through this year pretty much. So, you know, <laughs> four and a half years and it's like, whoa. Um, and so, you know, and that's, that's the challenge. The, where's your, what's your view on the reduction? Because, you know, one of the things we're very clear on as many others that, you know, substitution, it's great bringing in all of these innovative projects and it's kind of doing better with what we're doing already, making mm-hmm. greener products. But, you know, it's still consumption. It's still the rate. It's still those brands that, you know, they of course they want to survive. Of course they want to stick around. But, you know, that those levels of consumption is still, it's not supporting behavior change. It's just creating the same thing behind the the kind of curtain, bringing it out, the consumer is maybe a bit more comfortable because it says green and maybe that really does tick a box. Um, but, but you know, it's still this consumption mm-hmm. cycle treadmill that we're on. Where's the, what's your position? I know it's difficult because your business is about production, but, you know, where do you really sit and where, where do you feel that's going to impact brands and organisations? Are they going to pull back? on production do you think that's going to be a real 
change that we see moving forwards into the future or not? I mean, yes, I do. And I think the ver- the very first thing, particularly the apparel industry has to get to grips on, is its consumption. So this is um, our, how much fabric we use per garment. Yeah. So in a number of my smaller facilities where we produce smaller units, if we get 17% wastage, that's kind of considered okay. And you're like, you know, some tights, some running tights can be up to 28% wastage. Wow. Um, and then that is literally, you know, in, in many cases, just going directly to landfill or going back through a consumer waste stream. But if you've got elastane in there, particularly with run tights, which have a higher percentage, that's really problematic. Right. So the very first thing that we can get, we can get behind and, and it is a reduction in how much we use is using all the fabric in the first place. Absolutely. Um, and then, yes, we are going to need to bring in repair, resale and rental services. And a brand has to have all three. If they don't have all three, it's it's not contributing enough. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's I mean, that's your first five years done already, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, but after that, yes, we absolutely have to reduce the amount we are making. But the problem that we have is that we've done a huge project of offshoring um, going back to the 90s. The factories that we have in the Far East, they are geared up for high volume production. And switching that out quickly is is going to do them a detrimental service. Mm. Um, And without that financial support... Um, because we don't give them enough money. No. If we gave them enough money, their economies would be booming and they're not. Um, so we have a responsibility there. But we also need to realise that it's not just about us in the global north. You know, everyone talks about, oh, well, we need to keep our consumption up for these factories. Mm. It's the fact that China and India have the largest growing middle class. And India's was about to or just overtaken China as the most populated country. Um, so perhaps we should just be looking at our place in the world as well and saying, let's reduce what we're buying and actually free that up for other countries and their growing populations and mm. their growing middle classes. It's quite arrogant, isn't it, that we think, oh, we're helping you by buying more. I mean, it literally couldn't get any more, like, Kind of giving me the ick slightly. Not it's not a good narrative, is it's it? Not Does a good it, narrative, isn't it? We're helping you by owning more stuff. I mean, it's quite grim, isn't it? But <laughs> that is, but that that's kind of what Boris was saying, wasn't it? During COVID, can you please get out into the back into the shops, please, and start consuming because we need you to support the businesses. And in it, it, you know, that is that is the that is the treadmill, you know. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like, how do that's a really it's a really big shift. It's a really big shift and it's a really big challenge. But also the other big challenge is, 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 you know, you've talked about how we need to have repair and and, and resale and, and, and rental and then those services and that we need to consume less. And we need to really have an understand, a broader, wider understanding outside of our bubbles, don't we, of of the impact of what we're doing as well. That's really fundamentally important. And that's something that we, you know, through the carbon literacy training we do, we're trying to get people to see that, that we all have an impact, no matter how small. How do we get people to to take notice, 
to actually understand and care because that, you know, no amount of marketing is going to explain this complexity, is it? So we do really need people to do their bit and be be accountable and make, make better decisions. And so how do, you know, do you have any answers or, or any views on how we actually get people to care given everyone's so busy? <laughs> I think, so I... I don't know if I do have the answers because it's so interesting um, because I've actually, I actually had the same conversation with um, the site manager of the, of the building site opposite us. So they're building lots of these affordable housing. And I said to him, um, you know, how are we, I'd, I'd said, Oh, but you know, you, this this has happened you know you've got all these gas boilers you've got x y and z and you know i think it was about parking as well because we've got horrendous parking issues yeah. <laughs> so i said you know you've not taken responsibility for these issues that you said you were going to when we when we all agreed that yes you could build these 10 houses where the three houses used to be you <laughs> promised us x y and z and you've not delivered on that i can i can very clearly see you've not delivered on that and he honestly turned around to me and said, it wasn't my decision. You know, I, I have nothing to do with that. And I was like, are you really okay saying that? Yeah. Because we all have a responsibility and I can kind of, you know, I understand that because it's the same when I was working at the sports brand. I, I didn't push hard enough mm. for us to implement better sustainability practices. So I can kind of understand you go, well, not they my said, problem. yeah, not yeah. my problem. Yeah. But we do, we do now have to, to understand that in, in a business capacity, it is our problem because I believe the brand, you know, if something goes wrong, you've not done your job properly, the brand will hold you accountable. Um, in, and, and we just, yeah, we, we need to understand our own impact. Are we okay with that? Mm. You know? And it's our own moral compass, isn't it? It is our own moral compass. It yeah. is. It's that it's that getting uncomfortable. And if you feel uncomfortable, what are you going to do about that? Are you just going to sit on your hands or are you actually going to start waving them about and asking some questions and say, hang on a minute, I'm I'm not good with this? Oh, it's just there's so much we could continue to unpack here. And um I feel like we're just getting started in yeah. terms of how how can we build this transparency and trust? If marketers do start to ask the questions, what's going on behind them instead of looking forward to how they can drive it, then that knowledge, you know, as Michelle and I bang the drum all the time, once you see this stuff, you can't unsee it. But once you start to learn to talk about it in a way that you know is going to drive positive change, it becomes a bit sort of contagious, doesn't it? And then you just want to keep doing it. But as Michelle said, I think we I think we just probably started unpacking a big conversation we probably need to have again at some point. Yeah. But uh, Sam, we do like to wrap up the podcast with three quickfire questions, the same three quickfire questions to all of our guests. So our first question to you is, can marketing save the planet? Absolutely. I mean, marketing is um, part of our everyday um, and it's also part of our education now in a way. And I think once we if we're able to switch from a selling perspective into a I'm going to educate you perspective, I mean, that would, I think that would be probably the biggest change in, in implementing personal responsibility. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we agree with that completely. And what do you hope? I mean, we've talked about 2028. We've talked about how quickly that is. We're, we're meeting those dates, you know, 2030. This is the decisive decade. But what do you hope business looks like in 10 years time? I hope it is much more all-inclusive. So I hope that we will start seeing boards with representations of everyone in those supply chains, Mm -hmm. of customers, being much more answerable to those we work with instead of those we are um, providing money to, you know, it going from a shareholders um, mentality to a stakeholders mentality. Yeah. 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 And if you were to give one piece of advice to others around getting started with sustainable marketing, what would it be? I mean, I mean, aside from looking at your website, which I loved and I spent way too much time on oh. last week and not actually doing any work, um, which, yeah, I thought was really brilliant. I think it comes down to, again, you know, ask where does this fit in the overall strategy? Yeah. You know, can somebody explain to me, you know, what this is and, and why, why is such an important question? Yeah. I think we need to move away from what and into why. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. And that takes courage, that takes education. And I think that's where, you know, marketers who understand a little bit more about life cycle assessments, who understand a little bit more about the greenwashing legislation and just, you know, how uh, impactful that can be and and start to take their role in that education rather than, you know, let's just sell more stuff is 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 really critical um, because it is all part of the storytelling. It is all part of the narrative. You know, it is all part of brand um, that we that we talk about. So that's there's been loads in there to to unpack for our guests. So we hope you've all enjoyed listening. Sam, where can people go to find out more about the work that you're doing? So we, uh, you can look at our website, which is www.thegoodfactory.co.uk. Um, I am quite prolific on LinkedIn, um, which we get some really good conversations with. So yeah, do feel free to, to join me on there. Fantastic. And we'll make sure all those links are in the show notes for everybody. So it just takes us to say a huge thank you to Sam and a huge thank you for tuning in. If you love the podcast, tell us about it. Tell your friends about it. uh, And let's just keep growing this wonderful community. 